Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the final day of January. We are now through one of the two worst months of the year in Cleveland. One to go, and maybe the sun will shine in the second one. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston. Let's get to the news. I'm starting to think that Jerry Serino was like the Kevin Bacon character in Animal House, the guy that was just straight-laced and had no fun because he has declared war on college. He's got a new battlefront in that war. What is he making colleges and universities testify about in exchange for considering their quest for capital improvements like buildings. Lisa. Yeah, the Republican senator from Kirtland, who is chair of the Senate Workforce and Higher Education Committee, sent a letter to 14 public university presidents late early last month, and he's calling for hearings on building requests, employee costs, and the complete accounting of all spending on diversity, equity, and inclusion and related subjects. So these hearings are set to begin April 9th and run through May 8th, and he admitted that it's unusual to ask about non-capital related expenses like DEI, but he says, quote, this isn't any kind of witch hunt. He says he wants to understand the financial conditions before handing over millions of dollars to public universities. He also says he wants to discuss campus safety, especially for Jewish students in the wake of the Hamas-Israel conflict. Uh, Sarah Kilpatrick, who's with the Ohio Conference of American Association of University Professors, says She never before saw hearings requiring presidential testimony on capital budget requests. She says, obviously, they're being asked for much more. And she said, you know, they've been warning lawmakers about administrative bloat for years and nothing has been done to do it. And she says that Senate Bill 83 actually adds to administrative bloat. What's interesting about Jerry Serino is he tells you exactly what he's doing by saying he's not doing it. The the whole attack on free speech on college campuses, he brands it as a a move to increase speech. And it's like it's the opposite. And when he says this is not a witch hunt, he's basically saying it is exactly a witch hunt. What's next? He's going to ask these folks if they go to church on Sunday. I mean, DEI initiatives have absolutely nothing to do with construction and capital on campus. This is a capital budget. This is infrastructure they need to keep the colleges moving forward. And he's taking it in a completely different direction and telling you 
but but don't look behind the curtain. This isn't about what it looks like it's about. It's like, yeah, it's exactly about that. This guy has declared war on colleges. He's trying to turn them into fascist training centers. No DEI, no free speech. We're going to train people to be conservatives. And this is just a new step he's taken. Well, and it's a litmus test. This is exactly what this is. He wants to, you know, call them out on their DEI spending. And I'm sure they're going to have to come up with facts and figures to justify DEI spending. But this, yeah, this just seems overreaching. It's intimidation. It's a straight out intimidation. You want money for me? Come in. I'm going to grill you and put you on the hot seat. He's just out of control. I hear from people out in his district that are just shocked because he said, I'm going to come in as a business guy. I did really well in business and I'm going to bring a business sense to the legislature. So if he wanted to bring the colleges in and say, when's the last time you did an efficiency study? What's your ratio of of teachers to students and managers to non-managers and do things that he did in the business world? Okay, fine. That That's interesting. Maybe they're not efficient. But it's all ideological. He is on a crusade to try and stamp out what he sees as the liberalism in college. And let's face it, colleges are where kids go. Kids largely are liberal. As they get older, many of them stop being liberal. But that's just the way college campuses have always been. And this guy's just out of control. His constituents are, are complaining about him, and I don't think he cares. Can I? Well, and go ahead. I just wanted to say, I, I agree with Chris in that I do not think that Jerry Serino is doing this out of the goodness of his heart, right? Like trying to help these colleges, because we've talked about it before. Uh, public colleges, all colleges are coming for reckoning. There are fewer students going. There's a drop off the cliff for the birth years of 09 and 10. What are they going to do? How are they going to stay solvent in the future? And I think it is a great idea to have a third party look at where they're spending and say, look, our state tax money goes to support these colleges. There's 14 of you. Is there places that we could cut? Are we Could we find some places to save money? But you're right. This is just an attack on liberalism. And and I don't think the college kids want Jerry Serino grilling their president. And I want to point out that this morning in the news, the state of Utah, the lawmakers there passed a bill to ban DEI programs at schools and in government. So it's it's out there. Yeah, it's just pure ideology instead of the business of running the state. He has been an enormous disappointment as a legislator. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Cliffs bid for U.S. Steel was paltry in comparison to the Japanese firm that is buying it. So why is Cleveland Cliffs now arguing it had the better deal? Laura. Well, there's another deal that I don't think we knew about. We knew about the August offer that Cleveland Cliffs had offered, and it wasn't near as much money as Nippon Steel was giving. But And I remember when, when Nippon put in this offer and U.S. Steel accepted they Cleveland Cliffs was really gracious at the time but then this fourth quarter earnings call they're saying they had another offer that was worth more and that by the way we don't think this Japanese company sale will ever get approved by regulators so it turns out that Cleveland Cliffs was company D this is previously an anonymous company that was identified in a regulatory document trying to buy US steel at $54 a share Nippon countered with an offer worth $55 a share or 14.1 billion dollars that was just days before the sale was announced on December 
18th. The CEO of Cliffs says the Cliffs deal is better because while Nippon was all cash, the Cliffs was 27 cash, 27 stock, and 650 of potential cost savings. So they say that made it worth more than $60 a share. Yeah, it's an interesting take because when you look at the straight deal, you, you'd have a hard time if you're U.S. Steel turning down the Japanese firm. I mean, it just seems like they're willing to pay more. And is this twisted logic we're getting from local or is it legitimate? Well, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. But one thing is for sure that selling to a foreign company made really big waves on both sides of the political aisle. There's so much criticism for that. And that's why the CEO of Cliffs thinks this might not go through. And they think, quote, the mistake will be fixed, hopefully earlier than later. This came out of a 239-page regulatory filing that U.S. Steel published. And then the, the earnings call that Sean McDonald listened to yesterday. George Will wrote a great column attacking the Republicans, including J.D. Vance by name, for trying to block this deal because he basically says this is capitalism. Japan is a major partner of the United States, and Nippon Steel is promising to greatly fortify the steelmaking in America. Their plans are to make this the U.S. steel plants much more efficient. It was a very different take than what we've gotten from people like J.D. Vance, who are being protectionist. And he's calling them out, saying that's not the Republican philosophy is to be protectionist. Capitalism rules. Interesting take. Very different from what we've seen. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Aren't nonprofit agencies supposed to spend the money they collect on good causes? Why do Northeast Ohio's nonprofits have such enormous bank accounts when we have such enormous problems that could use the cash? Courtney, how much do the biggest ones have right now locked up in their bank accounts? Yeah, so we got a story this week looking at the the Form 990s that nonprofits have to file with the IRS. And this goes for tax year 2022. And when you look at the numbers for the, the biggest nonprofits in the greater Cleveland region, you know, of the top 100 organizations in Northeast Ohio, last year or in 2022, they generated a combined $31.6 billion in revenue. This is money that they're, they're bringing in. You know, for the most part, it's cash. But like in the case of food banks, for example, this revenue could include things like food donations and things. But for the most part, like you said, you were talking about cold, hard cash. And the median amount of revenue amongst these 100 top, you know, regional organizations was $48.7 million they brought in in 2022. So, so these are large figures. And it's worth noting what some of the, the largest collectors of money here are. So of those that, that topped $1 billion in revenue during 2022, that includes, no surprise there, the Cleveland Clinic Foundation is in the number one slot at $13.5 billion. And then university hospitals, almost $5 billion. Case Western Reserve University, a billion and a half. Summa Health, about the same. The American Endowment Foundation had about $1.4 billion, and Akron's Children's Hospital had about one2 yeah, but it's the amounts that they're sitting on that really strike me. I mean, within the clinic, wasn't it thirteen billion or something like that that they've got in their endowment fund? Yeah, the, this money that that's been brought in, of course, you know, some could be spent in in the year, and then some could be squirreled away. 
What, but what, what's sad about this is that the whole difference between nonprofit and for-profit. When the for-profit gets excess revenue over expenses, the people that own the company, the stockholders, get their payments. It's an investment. The purpose of nonprofit is, is charitable. They're supposed to do things. They're, they list in their filings their charitable cause, what they're there for, and then they're supposed to take that extra money they get that is not for profit, doesn't go to the owners, and spend it. And yet, the Cleveland Foundation, the Cleveland Clinic, they all have enormous sums of money in a city of abject poverty with, and in the clinic's case, serious health issues. Why aren't they spending significant portions of that money to help the city where they're located deal with these overwhelming health issues? I, it just seems something's awry here. You would think the government would get involved and say, look, that's not the purpose of a nonprofit is to build enormous bankrolls. You're supposed to live up to your purpose, which is to, in the clinic's case, take care of the health of people. Yeah, absolutely. And and we see that a lot of the people who are bringing in the big bucks here are the hospital system. So it is worth noting that their mission in particular, I mean, they're the ones with the money here. In large part, they top the list. Think about what you could do to, to affect health outcomes in Cleveland with a billion dollars. You know, you go into poverty stricken neighborhoods and you figure out a way to spend a billion dollars to change the outcome, you know, get rid of food deserts and bring in safety measures. That would be just a huge transformation. And yet the money just sits there collecting interest. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why do people lie about college degrees? What's the future for an Ohio lawmaker who claimed to have a degree from MIT that he did not have? Lisa, moron. Yeah, this is interesting. So the House, Ohio House District 10 representative Dave Dobos, who is from Columbus, withdrew his name for the March 19th primary in an email to the Franklin County Board of Elections. He did not give a reason why he's dropping out of the race. But as we've reported, he resigned as vice chair of the House Higher Education Committee back in April of last year after we reported that he falsely claimed to have graduated from MIT. Now, he did attend the school from 1973 to 1980 in three different stints, but he never did get an agree, a degree. So he's also being looked at for failing to disclose $1.4 million in outstanding debt as required for legislative candidates. He still wants to remain on the March 19th ballot, though, because he's running for the Franklin County Republican Party Central Committee. So that leaves two Republican candidates on the ballot, attorney Brian Garvine and Somali-American Chamber of Commerce President Shafi Shafat. I just don't get why I lie about it, because they're going to get caught. We see it with military records. We see it with college degrees. We see it all over the time. I mean, George Santos was the worst example but you claim a degree from MIT, all the people that went from MIT are going to check you out. I should point out, my dad was a graduate of MIT, got a full ride there. Obviously, intelligence does not go down from generation to generation. But I, it, you're going to get caught. So, so I just, you know, and if you're going to claim a degree from MIT, you're trying to say you're smart. And he's a dope because <laughs> his, his reputation is in tatters. It's just mind boggling how often this happens. 
I, or maybe lots of people do it and never get caught. We do seem to find this with a regularity that is stunning. Well, and I think part of the issue, and I could be off base here, but, you know, some of these, you know, where these people live, some of them don't have a daily newspaper. They don't have journalists looking into this kind of thing. I mean, that's how George Santos got on the ballot and won because the local people weren't paying attention. But all it takes is one person that actually graduated from the school you're claiming to think, huh, and check it out. And and you're cooked as he is and, and embarrassed and humiliated. And all his friends and family know that he's a faker. Just dumb. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. What is Dave Yost thinking? He wants to be Ohio's next governor, but he seriously damages his credibility with an endorsement in the Ohio race for the U.S. Senate. Laura, which candidate is he backing? Bernie Moreno. And I'm not sure why he's making this move. He's the first statewide office holder to endorse. And that's his pick. And before you say it, Chris, did you know that Trump <laughs> loves Bernie Moreno? Exactly. I, I, I just, this one throws me. Bernie Moreno is a joke. Everybody who knows him knows he stands for nothing. He's flip-flopped all over the place. His, his, he's cartoonish in his delivery. I mean, he just, he, he is nothing. He represents nothing. I'm, he tells you, I'm, I'm Trump's guy. I will not make a decision on my own. Donald Trump will just, will tell me what to do. I'll do it. And, and I'm all about Donald Trump. That, that's not who Dave Yost is. Dave How? Yost has shown a pretty independent streak. And Matt Dolan is in the race. Matt Dolan is cut from the same cloth as Dave Yost. Why would he endorse the guy who's clownish? I don't. I'm not sure what his thinking is here. What Yost said is to defeat Sherrod Brown in November, we need to nominate a proven conservative, which question mark there who can unite the party and bernie is the candidate who could do that i i don't know if he just thinks well bernie's gonna win and this is gonna help me what's interesting is he has worked directly with both matt dolan and frank larose in state government and he's picking the one guy who hasn't held a role in state government at all there's like two sides to yos there's the one side where he does thoughtful innovative things we talked last week about the his partnership with the u.s attorney and trying to to mm -hmm. prosecute Cleveland gun crimes in federal court to get more sentences. He's he's the leader of the suit against the NCAA for trying to stop kids from transferring. And lots of people, including the, the U.S. Justice Department, have joined his suit. Thoughtful stuff. Then, he, you know, he he joins frivolous lawsuits in other states and he he did that whole thing with the 10 year old and abortion. And then, and then he does this. I mean, this is not credible. This, there, there are people all through the state that know Bernie Moreno is, is a silly candidate. And here he is putting his full faith and credit behind him. It's just strange. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland City Council President Blaine Griffin has stumbled terribly in his clumsy efforts to control public comments at city council meetings, but on Monday he almost did something that likely would have had major repercussions for his future political career. Courtney, what almost happened? 
Yeah, so Monday was quite a day at City Council. We've had these weeks and weeks of protesters showing up who have been urging City Council to pass a resolution, a ceremonial resolution, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Basically, these folks want their, um, you know, elected representatives to kind of espouse the same concerns and, and, and thoughts they have around this topic. But, you know, City Council has not had the appetite to do that, frankly, you know, and what we've seen as these protests grow is city council getting more and more concerned about what they see as the disorderliness of their Monday night meetings. And there is a point there. Last week, the audience, you know, at times dozens and dozens of folks, you know, were chanting so loud that the meeting had to be cut short and you couldn't hear what business was going on, which kind of negates the purpose of a city council meeting, right? They got to do their business. So this kind of confluence of, of factors led to Griffin on Monday night basically announcing that city council would not be considering a ceasefire resolution. And then shortly before the meeting began, he rolled out this new set of protocols that he says would allow him to flush everybody out of the chamber, all members of the public out of the chamber and out of the council meeting it would be cleared out by police and then council would presumably come back and finish the meeting without anyone in attendance other than media. No public would be allowed in the room at the public meeting. And the crowd, he didn't enact an act on these this new protocol that he rolled out on Monday because the crowd, you know, the chants weren't super disruptive and and the meeting's business still continued as normal. But what we have in place now is this ability for city officials to just kick the public out if if the chance and disorderliness they see is, is just getting in the way of their yeah and the truth is he can't do it he would violate the charter they they put together a an ordinance that says they consider it a public meeting if they broadcast it but their problem is it's the city charter that says meetings must be public that provision was written long before there was anything like a virtual meeting. So you can't say the framers contemplated that. When they said public meeting, they said people will be there. You can't arbitrarily change that with an ordinance. If they get sued, I'm nearly certain they would lose and be humiliated. I, I just, and it's a dumb move. If people are misbehaving in the council chamber, police can remove them. I mean, you can't have people misbehave in the council chamber, but identify them, walk them out and 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 continue the meeting. To ban the public from a public meeting would endanger anything they do because it might mean that it it doesn't actually take place. I also I want to point one other thing out. When I covered city council a quarter century ago, I didn't write about resolutions because they're meaningless. They hold no weight. They're about as useful as wet toilet paper. And I cannot believe that all this controversy is over this meaningless piece of paper that carries no meaning whatsoever. You know, I, I am intrigued about kind of the legal reasoning here, like you kind of talked about initially there. So the city says it can do this. Like you said, it's relying on that argument that these meetings would still be, you know, broadcast on YouTube and TV 20. So the public technically would be able to, you know, watch what's happening. But, you know, Cleveland attorney David Marburger is kind of the expert on, on kind of these rules in the city's charter. He's gone to court and, and won an open meetings case in the past 
based on the same language in the city charter. So he knows what he's talking about. And he doesn't, he's concerned this does violate the charter. You know, he says, okay, there, there, there's a reason it's acceptable to kick out disruptors, right? But you can't flush everybody out. If I'm sitting there next to someone who's yelling, why am I getting kicked out at the meeting when they're the ones yelling is basically the point Marburger was making here. So there are charter concerns. The city is relying on that ordinance that, you know, in Marburger's opinion, appears to conflict with the charter. It does conflict with the charter. And we should point out, Dave Marburger literally wrote the book on public meetings and it's called Access with Attitude. And and actually, I think I'm in the dedication because we worked so closely together for years. They, they, they can't do this. And what I'm surprised at is even if they could do this, that Blaine Griffin would try. He has clear designs on being mayor someday, but he is doing dopey thing after dopey thing. I mean, we talked yesterday about how he seems like he's impeding the plan to remake downtown. And if you flush everybody out of a council meeting or threaten to, that's not going to go well with the voters. They're not going to back you for that. You're violating the charter's public meeting. There's a better way. I, I'm amazed that every step of the public comment, they've stumbled. This isn't that complicated. Lots of governments have figured out a way to do it, and they just keep being clumsy. This was the most clumsy. Fortunately, they didn't do it, and hopefully they'll think wisely and not try to do it in the future. Because we'll, we'll be among those going to court. I mean, you cannot close a public meeting. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much is 20 years, 23 years of your life worth? And not very much, according to a settlement the state has made involving a man who spent 23 years in prison on a false conviction. Lisa, what, what, what's going on here? And I raised this in the same month that somebody got an $83 million verdict for being defamed by Donald Trump. This person lost 23 years of their life. They don't even get a million. Yeah, the attorney general agreed to a $900,000 settlement to the daughters of Norwalk resident James Parsons, who, as you said, spent 23 years in prison for the 1981 murder of his wife, Barbara. He died in 2017 at age 79. That was after his conviction was tossed, but before a new trial could be held. The Ohio Innocence Project took on his case back in 2015. So this case has a weird timeline. The charges in the case came more than 10 years after the murder when Norwalk police detective Mike White sent blood evidence and the alleged murder weapon, which is a breaker bar used by mechanics, which Parsons was, and he sent it to a former BCI forensic analyst, Michelle Yezzo, who lied about performing tests on the evidence, which led to Parsons' indictment and the 1993 trial where he was convicted. Prosecutors never disclosed that Yezzo was under internal investigation. She left BCI in 2009 and, you know, the, the, they found that th- she is not covered by qualified immunity. I, I just am surprised that the, the small amount of money. I mean, yeah. So 23 years is worth less than a million dollars. I mean, imagine that taking away 23 years of your freedom and the state saying, yeah, that, that this is what we think your life is worth. We, we, and we've seen a, a wide range of of these amounts over the years. And we're going to try and do a story that finds the logic and how they decide. You would think there'd be a pretty set rate for this, that, that if you are deprived of your liberty because of misbehavior by the state, that, that you should get a significant sum for every minute you spend 
locked away, but clearly not in this case. Well, I wonder, just to play devil's advocate, I wonder if the amount was lower because he's no longer with us. He's deceased. You know, if he was alive, maybe he could have, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Yeah, but, but And to compare it to E.G. and Carroll's settlement, which was decided by a jury, is not really, that's kind of apples to oranges there. Although you- she's getting $83 million. Well, if she gets it. Because he defamed her. This guy's getting less than, his family's getting less than a million. They were deprived of his presence for 23 Mm -hmm. years. Right. And the fact that he died, that makes it that much worse because they don't get any time with him. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't make it up. Yeah, it's it's a strange case. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does one of the people convicted of sleazy behavior in the big Cuyahoga County corruption case early last decade end up getting glowing recommendations from bar associations in his quest to become a judge? Laura? He's not exactly getting gold stars, but this is worrisome because when you go to vote for judges, it's hard. You don't know who you're voting for a lot of times, so you rely on something like judge for yourself, which takes the bar associations and their recommendations and lets people know what kind of judge this is. Well, Joseph P. O'Malley, he's 57. He pleaded guilty in 2011 for failing to report a federal crime, lying to the FBI as part of two schemes in which he helped then auditor Frank Russo justify giving a political opponent a job. He also asked Russo to influence a judge in a civil case. Now he wants to be juvenile court judge. With a name like O'Malley, I feel like he's got a pretty good shot. And he's the brother of Cuyahoga County Juvenile Court Administrative Judge Thomas O'Malley, also owns Fat Little Buddies, which is a popular Olmstead Falls bar with his former wife. But Judge for Yourself, which, like I said, is a bunch of bar associations, they half of them gave O'Malley a rating of good. And that's the Cuyahoga Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar, and the Ohio Women's Bar Association. He got satisfactory from the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association, Norman S. Minor Bar Association, and only the Asian American Bar Association gave O'Malley a not recommended rating. And who he's up against is Allison Floyd, who did not participate, but has been a longtime juvenile judge. Yeah, and there are people who aren't participating because they're questioning the veracity of these ratings. They don't think they're getting a fair shake. This certainly raises questions. Look, our editorial board endorsed Jeff Johnson for municipal court judge, uh, and he was convicted a quarter century ago of doing something bad in federal court, served his time. But he has spent those last 25 years atoning. He joined the Campbell administration. He's had a series of jobs. He was on city council. So for 25 years, he's been establishing his bona fides. I don't know that O'Malley has done that. So it is surprising. I also should point out the county corruption case for people who weren't around was devastating to this county. 60 plus Mm -hmm. people went away. There were dozens and dozens of corrupt schemes. The whole place was rotten. Nobody wanted to do business here. The whole economy was moribund because everything was controlled by by corrupt bombs. And he was part of it. He was involved in part of the scheme to help Russo get reelected by putting up a fake candidate. I mean, it was it was horrendous what happened there. And what has he done to atone, to show that he deserves not only respect, but to be elected as a judge? If you were a kid in juvenile court and he's handing down judgments on you, what would you think? Because he was one of the worst. 
Yeah. His law license was suspended for five years in 2013 because of his convictions. He's been a public defender in Parma Municipal Court since 2019. I'm with you, Chris, because Frank Russo stayed in office for more than a dozen years, right? And part of this was putting up fake candidates to run against him. So there was no real choice. And, you know, he he's the one who had, you know, stole a million dollars and money was put in cigarette packs. So what O'Malley says is, I had two bad days in my life. That doesn't mean I lack the integrity to do the job. It means I have a momentary lapses in judgment where I didn't exercise a judgment that was required and I paid a significant price for that. I'm sorry, if you are, if you are in a scheme with Frank Russo, that is more than two days of your life. Yeah. And yes, I agree. And look, we keep trying to have faith and judge for yourself, but stuff like this comes along and they won't explain it. That's one of the worst parts is they won't be transparent. So all you know is what we've discussed. You don't know why they think he has somehow atoned and merits this. And, and it's just, it throws me and he's running against the judge that's pretty respected, right? but he has that name and we could end up with a guy who was instrumental in the big, horrible corruption probe sitting in judgment of kids. And, and just, it, it doesn't seem fair that just because you don't participate means you get not recommended. I mean, if you've got a long record on as a judge on the bench, which judge Floyd does like, look at that. Yeah, it's a kind of a mess. Another another serious question about judge for yourself. You're listening to Teddy in Ohio, and that's it for the Wednesday episode. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. <laughs> <laughs>